Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. QBAC is a next-generation advancement solution that reimagines alumni engagement to drive giving. QBAC doesn't just measure alumni engagement scores. It uses academic research in cognitive science and positive psychology to actually increase an alum's willingness to give. Quantitative data, such as capacity, gets a prospect into your pipeline. But qualitative data, such as impact stories, gets a prospect through your pipeline. QBAC's AI-driven system uncovers actionable insights and automatically delivers them to major gift officers for use in cultivation. Learn how to raise more money with less by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. I would also like to tell you about Responsive's training. If you're looking to align your entire team around a shared understanding of effective fundraising, let's talk about Responsive's four frameworks. If your culture doesn't feel right, before you begin any significant planning, launch a capital campaign, let's ensure that everyone is on the same page. How about inviting us to be on site with your board, leadership team, volunteers, and staff for your next planning event? If you prefer a virtual event, that'll work too. Let's get your team thinking critically and more carefully about the road ahead. Shoot me an email. I will also put some information in the show notes. Hi, Mike. Hi, Teresa. I am delighted to have you both on the Fundraising Talent Podcast today. Mike, I'm especially excited to have you uh, as our guest today because I think you're the first individual from one of the uh, U.S. military academies to be our guest. I want to say I had someone, yes, I know I had someone who was um, from a military sort of college school, something of the sort, but not one of the academies. So uh, so you are the first in 200 plus episodes to be representing one of our fine military academies um, here in the United States. And so I'm grateful to have you on. Um, and then Teresa, I'm delighted to have you back. You're, our, you're a member of our responsive consulting team up in New England. Um, let's just have the two of you introduce yourself. How about you start, Mike? Tell us who you are and tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be uh, to kind of lead the way on the on the development side for the service academies. We've uh, we've got a good network within our own uh, own little community here, but certainly um, part of the the higher ed uh, industry at the end of the day. But a uh, little bit about me: I've I've been at the Naval Academy Alumni Association and Foundation for the past eight years. Um, I started as a as a major gifts officer and being the you know small team that we have that does major gifts. So we're a team of about seven um, regionally focused major gifts operation um, and uh, wrapping up a campaign right now and looking forward to, to the future. Um, a little bit about my background. I, I uh, uh, went to Loyola College up in Baltimore, Maryland, so I'm not a Naval Academy grad, a, a question that is often asked of us, um, but got my start in 
development kind of backwards like most of us and uh, did alumni relations for a couple of years. Um, really got my start in major gift fundraising at Johns Hopkins uh, back in 2008, spent four years there and have essentially been here ever since and and love everybody. Yeah, else. thanks so for being here with us. Here. Uh, Teresa, you're a member of our responsive team. How about you uh, make sure everybody knows who you are as well? Sure. I'm <clears throat> Teresa Lee and I am um, a fundraising consultant representing responsive fundraising in New England. I started consulting about three years ago independently under my own banner and joined up with Jason about a year or a little over a year ago. Uh, prior to that, I had a 25-year career in higher education, uh, 15 of those years at MIT, but also stops at um, Boston College and a few other schools around Boston. Uh, and I'm happy to be here. I love these conversations and getting new perspectives. Yeah, it really keeps us on our toes, doesn't it, Teresa? It does. Uh, so, Mike, I've got to ask you this before we get you to uh, sort of give us your big idea or bold opinion, which we always like our like our guests to bring us. Sure. Uh, but I had a guy on here, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago that was a military guy, and uh, I shared with him that my my father spent thirty five years thirty five years mostly in the U.S. Coast Guard, um, and uh, and we we just developed in that conversation, sort of an appreciation of sort of what it means to come from sort of a military background. And um, what, what the story he was sort of telling our listeners was the idea of sort of these guys, guys and gals coming out of the U.S. military after 20 years retiring and very effectively transitioning into fundraising roles. Um, Have you seen that? Have you guys experienced that or observed that, 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 uh, you know, reti- and the thing, the, the thing that was kind of fascinating about this particular conversation is we all know a lot of people can go into the U.S. military, do 20 years worth of service, still be very young, still, on, you know, still on top of things, still spend another, you know, they could easily work another 20 years. And for some reason, you know, the, the case he was making was that uh, fundraising really seemed to line up with that for some reason. What's your thoughts on that? Oh, I, I, I wish we had uh, more folks uh, applying for our, our rules that had fundraising backgrounds that are graduates of the Naval Academy or, or any of those other service academies. It's, I think, line with just the industry in general. Can we, we do a better job of talking about this as a profession and attracting folks that are coming out of the military to this as something that's meaningful? Um, you know, every, the one thing that is, is very true, I think, of, of all the grads that I, I work with is... Um, how mission driven they are, regardless of whether it's in the private sector or the public sector. And to, to offer this as an opportunity would be amazing. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think we're there yet. I, I, like I said, I'd love to see more. We do have a, a, a small uh, handful of, of, of grads out there that are out doing fundraising. Um, uh, we would, we would absolutely love yeah. to expand that. Though. So Mike, we ask our, uh, <clears throat> we ask our guests to bring a big idea, bold opinion. Uh, in this particular case, you haven't had the opportunity to share it with us. So Teresa and I are sort of, anxiously awaiting what uh, what sort of curveball you're going to throw at us. What you got for us? So I, I don't know if it's a curveball, but, um, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's obviously been an interesting year for, for everybody. And, and particularly, uh, you kind of cut the legs out from folks that are used to traveling and, and doing fundraising on the road. You, you know, I, uh, I'll try not to reference your, your book a whole lot here, um, so it doesn't look like <laughs> I'm trying to do a, a sales job. But, you know, I read it. I reread it. I reread it this week in anticipation of this conversation. And, um, you know, the, the bold idea is that this, the last yeah. year has changed what we do. Um, we have had to adapt significantly. Um, we, we have gone from this in-person um, relationship building business to 
you know, locked in our homes or offices and, and having to uh, achieve the same results. And, and, you know, I think we're particularly impacted on the major gifts side in, in that, um, you know, you can, you can uh, still do a lot of the things that we do on the annual giving side. It, it still is, is difficult. I'm, I'm not like giving them a free pass at all, but from the idea that you're going to get on a plane, go see 10 people in a week, um, bring faculty to them, all those things are, are, are completely gone. So, you know, the, the bold opinion that I think I would offer to be succinct, succinct is necessity is the mother of adaptation. Um, so, we, you know, not necessity is the mother of, of invention, but at adapting it. And we have uh, just gone through our, our team, a, a, a sort of end of calendar year review and planning process for this year and kind of took a step back and looked at how we've had to adapt and start to think about what's what's going to stick and and what's going to what's going to revert back to the way we used to do things. And it's an interesting conversation because um, it involved everything from budgeting to hiring to resource allocation, um, you know, all these different things. So the adaptation for major gift fundraising is my uh, is what I have bold opinions on. Maybe that's maybe that's a better way to say it. Yeah, I think we've been talking about. <clears throat> I don't know, for the last couple of decades, a lot of people who talk about leadership development now are talking about adaptive, what they call adaptive leadership. And um, and I think what has frustrated me at times, and, and I think you're the first guy, Mike, who's come on here and sort of presented adaptation as sort of the uh, sort of the focus of, of the conversation. We, we hear a lot about pivoting, for example, you know, let's pivot this, pivot that. And it sounds somewhat cliche and it certainly almost sounds like a gimmick in some cases. Um, and, and I think, I think perhaps what you're getting at and, uh, and, and what I'd like you to sort of unravel a little bit more for us is, is, I mean, you're, you're, you're talking about a sort of a change in the way of thinking. That's what, when somebody's teaching adaptive leadership, they're talking about a change of worldview. Um, they're talking about sort of seeing the world very differently. Am I right? Yeah, I think I, I think that's that's fair. Uh, you, you know, I think uh, you know to touch on some of the things that that you put in your book, or all the things that that we wanted to to do differently in this in this business. Um, you know, everything from you know your your travel schedule to um, how you engage donors. Um, those are all things that we were forced to adapt to in the past year. And and my challenge to to our team and, and just the way we do things is, all right, what are, what's going to, what, what, what's going to stick. And so being, so having this, uh, uh, you know, adaptive leadership is an interesting way to look at that, but, and, and I, so I think it's, it's about being able to take advantage of the opportunity that we've been presented, which I think is a little bit of a gift. And I don't, I obviously don't mean to say anything about all the, the, the trouble the country has gone through, but, um, you know, we've, we've really been given this gift to, 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 to do the things that we always wanted to do in this world and, and change the way we do our business. What do you think, Teresa? What, yeah. What are those kinds of things? Can you give some examples of that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, I think that there's been a, a natural evolution over the past, you know, when I started at Hopkins, I think I had 175 prospects. Um, when I got in my portfolio, when I got to, when I got here, the way we were doing things, I think I was assigned to 300 people. Um, you know, we have, uh, like most shops have shifted to, to smaller portfolios that were more manageable. And I think Jason, you put in your book 150. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I think we are on a path to, uh, major gift folks being able to really focus on 75 yeah, I, or I 80 so folks. I, I, yeah. I think what we've learned over the past year is that 
if you take a step back and 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 kind of embrace the concept of less is more, you have you know time to to more thoughtfully approach how you engage a donor, more thoughtfully approach stewardship, more thoughtfully approach engagement. Um, you know, so you so you've got to. Uh, you've you got to really readjust everything that we do because I think the first thing that somebody uh, on the on the other side of the coin would say, well, what are you going to fill? What's somebody going to do then besides that? Um, so what are they, uh, you know, how's somebody going to fill their day? And I think that that's, uh, you know, an interesting perspective. I would, I would say, you know, we've got results now over the past year and I'll pick out one, for example, um, our team, uh, we were about 90% to our fundraising goal with 50% less activity. Um, that's a pretty interesting right, say, say that again, uh, if you don't mind. way of looking at things. Say that again. Give me, give me that stat one more time. That's we, interesting. We have a, so we have a, essentially a benchmark, uh, of what our, our, our regional development team is supposed to do. And we got yeah. 90% of that goal on calendar year 20. Yeah. Um, if you look at, uh, what we define as meaningful donor engagement yeah. and in our terminology, we call that substantial interactions. Yeah. We did 50% less of that activity in 2020 than we did in 2019. There's something there. Um, so what did we do? And the, the bottom line on this less is more thing, we spent more time engaging with the donors that wanted yep, to engage, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, which I think is a, a pretty basic philosophy, but not in, not know, in, uh, not in fundraising. To, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> it should be. Well, that's it, should be. it should be, but should uh, be. yeah. You know, I, I, I go back to, to my, you know, days at, at Hopkins on the regional team. And we were very much a discovery shop. So, so I, I keep that in mind, but, you know, we were traveling for the sake of traveling many of the times we, we were, we were not as strategic about going on the road. And, and I think that that is slowly, you know, as you get more te- senior in your career or you change shops, I, I think that, that, that gets diminished. But, um, you know, I think the future is you're really not going to get on the road until you have that really meaningful anchor visit. And, and maybe you don't, uh, your whole trip planning process has changed if you're just going to focus on the folks that want to be engaged. That is true. Like having an anchor visit, let's say you're going to California and you've got the one or two prospects that are key for you. Well, you don't go all the way out to California without filling in the rest of your time, but the rest of your time might be with people that, yeah, they'll take a meeting with you, but it's, it's leading to nowhere. So on Zoom, you can, yeah. your anchor visit is your visit, right? It's your business. Yeah, it's what you're <laughs> yeah. doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, we just, you know, Mike, I, I've been reading a book by an author, um, teaches up at the business school in Toronto, and he's talking about how we sort of conflated efficiency and effectiveness. And, 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 and it sounds to me like what the last year has sort of proven to you is that you can effectively, you know, when we conflate the, when we conflate one metric for another, I mean, we, he's not saying let's just throw efficiency completely out the window, right? We've got to pay attention to, to those quantitative metrics, sort of tell us how, how well we're doing something in terms of cost and use of time and so forth. But when you conflate something with something else, when the, with the rate of efficiency as an indication of, of how effectively you're accomplishing a, a goal, which is ultimately what we're trying to, to do in any case, regardless of whether it's fundraising or anything else. And then when you think about the, the amount of data and the amount of opportunities perhaps that we put on some, some of these development officers plate only to find out that like in your case, 50% of these people want to give you essentially they're, they're signaling to you what, what you're, what you very much as a team sort of observed in the last year is you've identified that 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 half of your portfolios 
that actually wants to be in meaningful relationship with you. Now, what that what that also signals, and correct me if I'm wrong, that doesn't mean the other half of your portfolio is not giving. It just means that they're just not into the business of what we're doing in terms of engagement. They're certainly not going to be the types who are going to want you to fly across the country to meet with them. And, and quite honestly, they're still probably going to write you a check at the end of the year, but they don't demand of us. <clears throat> they don't expect certainly not in the near term, um, the, the, the engagement that ultimately, and this, this, is where, this is where my book comes into the conversation, I think part of the challenge is, is we're putting too many guys and gals like yourself on airplanes, flying them across the country to meet with people who ultimately don't want to be met with, may or may not give, and it just doesn't make for meaningful work for the guy in your seat. And so for you to say to me today, I've raised, we've raised 90% of our goals. So we haven't let the, we haven't let 2020 sort of punch us in the gut to the point where we feel like we're, you know, a bunch of miserable saps, but we do feel like we've engaged with people who actually want to sit on the phone with me or on a zoom call with me. I actually feel like a decent human being. Am I right? Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. I, I, it's just, it's allowed us to, to kind of sift through the congestion. Um, you know, we, 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 I think as a, as an industry as particularly in higher ed, um, from my, you know, uh, uh, you know, relationships with other colleagues and things like that, we've overemphasized meetings as a metric. Um, and you could go and, and get on the road and, and do all these meetings and people were taking meetings. I, I unfortunately, sometimes out yeah, of courtesy, exactly. um, Oh, well, somebody's from Annapolis is coming. This is great. Uh, you know, I don't want to say no to them, but at the end of the day, um, you know, let's say you, you strike up a, a nice relationship with them and, and you guys have a, the, the donor and the development officer have a lot in common. And, and all of a sudden that person is perhaps not a major gift prospect, but they're, they're willing to see you every time they, uh, they are giving at a small level. So it's not to write them off entirely, but, um, you know, I, I, I think it's those types of things that have, um, been removed from the day to day and allowed us to just focus on um, the the super meaningful relationships and really invest in them, um, invest in them from how we steward them to uh, you know to just taking the time to sit back and think about them. I think that's one of the things that has changed this year for us. It's just you know we've 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 allowed ourselves to um, to really. Uh, put the time and effort into thinking through what's going to move somebody closer to a major gift. You know, one of the things that I think the pandemic has laid bare is our need for one another. And it, mm -hmm. um, we've kind of, all the noise and the busyness has kind of uh, departed, I guess, from our day to day. More mm -hmm. solitude for each of us, which some people like and some people don't. But I think what you're getting at is, um, rather than being on site and going to lots of meetings and, and all of that, you had to sit back and evaluate, okay, what, how do we do our work? Who do we do our work with? And that narrowed your focus considerably. And it got you back to basics. Mm -hmm. That's another interesting thing that this has mm -hmm. laid bare exactly. is that relationships matter and quality relationships matter. And it's wonderful that you're, you're discovering exactly. that. My other question to you, though, is, you know, we are seeing more and more economic disparity among our donors. So what we keep seeing mm -hmm. as a pattern is uh, nonprofits are raising more money, just as much, if not more money, but from fewer donors. 
And I know you're on the major gift side, but Mm -hmm. in the bigger picture of the Naval Academy, are you seeing that shift? Is that fewer are getting more? Yeah, we we are, um, you know, fortunate in that I think our donor base has has sort of has done, uh, you know, reasonably well in in the course of the economy sure. over the past year. And, and I don't, um, you know, we're fortunate. We understand that. Um, so you know, we uh, we have historically been in about in the in the mid eighties in terms of percentage of what what our overall dollars are coming from major gifts. Um, so we are not quite the 95.5. We are not quite the 90.10. We're, we're the 85.15. So we're somewhere in the middle. Um, we do very well with major and principal principal gift donors. We do um, very well with um, you know annual donors. Um, our kind of uh, poll is more so in the middle. Uh, but you know we we are we're lucky in the in the sense that um, you know we we've got a, a fairly good balance to this and the economy hasn't, hasn't affected us too much. Uh, that's not to say that, that we haven't had people shift giving to somewhere else. And, 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 and we celebrate that. I mean, they're, they're philanthropists, uh, they're giving their values haven't, haven't changed. Um, their values are just redirected during the course of the last year, which is totally understandable. Yeah. You've got me thinking about your, your comment a few minutes ago about doing those qualifying visits in light of sort of what you've learned over the last year. And you'll remember that point in the book. So in the point, I, I had done some research on the way that healthcare takes care of its nurses and the way that if you can track, mm-hmm. if you really good healthcare organizations have figured out that rather than sort of evaluating how well the patient's been cared for, pay attention to how well the, the nurse is being cared for. And if the nurse has long tenure, for example, in his or her job, if they're feeling like they're being cared for, um, as your employee and as the person who's there responsible for taking care of the relationships with patients, then generally you've got a pretty good dynamic going on. And, and you'll recall in the book that I sort of parallel that with, I think organizations need to start paying more attention to how well we take care of our fundraisers. And, and I'm thinking about the comment you just made a few minutes ago, Mike, because I've been there. I'm sure Teresa's been there too. You're in the living room of an individual who's invited you into the home, you're on a qualifying visit. You've got an individual who perhaps is very much sort of signaling a willingness to have a meaningful relationship, but you're there to qualify this individual and whether or not, and if they don't sort of signal a willingness to write a super mega big check, somebody's boss, your your board, your boss, or somebody is going to basically say that person doesn't stay in your portfolio. I mean, it's got to be some of the most sort of dysfunctional sort of ways in which, you know, and I'm not suggesting that's what you guys are doing at the academy, but I know that I, I've been in those places where I've realized this person is very receptive to a meaningful relationship, but he or she's not going to write a check of the size that my boss is going to, you know, allow me to sort of lean into this relationship. I mean, you're talking about exploiting individuals for their wealth. And you're also talking about exploiting individuals for their willingness to say, yeah, I'll have a cup of coffee with you, only to find out that they can't write a big enough check. I had a guy, certainly not at your institution and not an institution that Teresa and I are associated with, but I had a fellow tell me a couple, I don't know, two years ago, he's a major gift officer nearby, and he says, we can't do in-person meetings with donors that will not give less than a $100,000 gift. 
And I thought, man, I know a lot of charities in my, you know, just in my region that'll take people out to lunch all day long for checks half as much, you know, for fractions of a hundred thousand dollars. Um, it just seems like, and, and I guess, I guess here's a, here's something for you to sort of give us some, your thoughts on, are we going to come out on, of, of COVID-19 learning some of the things you've learned and guys like you are going to wake up to the idea that, Hey, my shop's got itself in order or my shop doesn't have itself in order. And I'm going to go find an environment that really gets how this works. Like, are we more enlightened now mm-hmm. on the fact that our boss and our boards actually know how this works? Um, because I've, I think you've got a lot of people like yourself who've been paying attention really closely to how well the organization was prepared. You did your job. You did your job as best you could. You adapted. But you're also paying attention to how well your the organizational setting you're in was actually ready to adapt. Yeah, in that example, I, I think one of the things that that we we benefit from, and hopefully others do too, is a strong team across the organization. So, you know, we have a, a pretty robust checklist system where if somebody is not a major gift prospect, yeah. um, we can hand them off to the right relationship within the organization, yeah. and that's with annual giving or planned giving, or um, or or we we communicate broadly with. Um, both myself and our, and our vice president, we, we continue to communicate with those, with all, all prospects, um, or people that we've deemed not a prospect, um, just because you, 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 we owe it to them. This is their institution. So we don't abandon ship, uh, not to use a Navy term there, but, um, you know, we don't abandon ship entirely on, on the relationship. It's just, uh, it, it's a conversation you have to have with somebody and, and we, uh, you you bring up an interesting point about the the healthcare industry, and I want to go back to something there. Um, but being able to say like, you know, we we've got uh, so let's use uh, a place like Dallas for example, where we've we've got a, a strong alumni network. If 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 our member of the team that works Dallas is down there and, and encounters that that lunch where somebody can't write the six figure check, um, there's a conversation to have that says, you know, listen, this is. We'd love to have you involved in our, our regional efforts here to, to help build out our network, get involved in the chapter, get involved with annual giving. There, there's obviously a relationship here. It's it's more so on us, I think, to to be upfront and and clear about those. So, but also always be available. I yeah. mean, we, if somebody calls us back, we're not like, well, I don't work with you anymore. Um, you don't have enough so money for you know we for me to take your call. <laughs> like, how cold would that be? Yeah. Right. No, that, that that's that's certainly not the. Uh, that that's not the implication, but you know, we're, we're lucky in that we've got great, great partners across our, our organization that can um, carry those relationships on, particularly from a fundraising standpoint. So they can, you know, s- still contribute, still feel good about their gift. And, um, yeah, but, but Mike, you know, you're, they're, they're, Mike, you're focusing on the, you're focusing on the donor side of the equation. We hire, we hire human beings who are highly relational people like the three of us on this call today who want to spend time with people. If we, I mean, that, that, that's the point of that mm-hmm. book that you read. It's not to be all about the donor. We've become so damn donor centric that we can't recognize that the person in your seat might actually like the individual that mm-hmm. he or she is having lunch with, might actually enjoy the conversation, might even have some common, maybe you read the same books, maybe you went to the same university, maybe, maybe your kids are, you know, who knows what your common connections are. But to be told by the, I mean, we've got to get better at, it it just seems like we've got to better understand that we're hiring people 
for their friendliness, for their outgoingness, for their extroversion in many cases. And we're in some ways exploiting that when you when you show up in Dallas and that person can't give a six figure gift. Mm-hmm. And all of all of a sudden you're told, Mike, unplug that relationship. They can't give you enough. You can't give you enough money. I think that donor actually, Mike, mm-hmm. I think in most cases that donor's twice your age and can probably grapple. And I think they can swallow that pill easier than most guys in your seat can. I think the person in your seat tends to be 35 Mm -hmm. to 45 years old and hasn't swallowed that pill as many times. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a, that's a good assessment of it for sure. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) There's always a point where I get up on a soapbox, Mike. (laughs) No, no, you know, that, that, you know, it's an ongoing challenge. I, 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 I think, uh, you know, that's part of the management process is, is helping those conversations to figure out, um, you know, we, we have that in our portfolios review all the time. Well, I've got a, got a great relationship with, with so-and-so. Um, and, you know, we have all these rules, uh, for good reason built in to, to examine those things at a, at a consistent periodic basis. So if it's, if it's been 18 months and, you know, our, our such and such prospect in our portfolio hasn't made a gift, there's a real conversation that goes into what are we going to do about this? Is this, is this person, um, belong in a major gift portfolio or do they belong being managed by somebody else in the organization? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and maybe in some ways, and, and maybe in some ways it's that we, we as institutions, like an institution, like the Naval Academy, nine times out of, just like when I was at the epilepsy foundation, the, the doors that you're knocking on generally fit a particular profile, not because of their wealth, but because they fit in a, the, a, a you know, an affinity group as it relates to the institution. So in this, in your case, it's a, it's either a graduate or somebody who has a relationship with a graduate or something of that sort. In my case, it was people who had a seizure disorder or cared about someone like that. And so we need to mm-hmm. perhaps, perhaps if we made it, and this is my critique in the new book about donor centrism, I, I, if we stop making our identities all wrapped up in the fact that we can write checks, maybe we'd get better at this. Mm-hmm. Here, here's my question. Go, going yeah, back I, to what you were talking about, um, about adaptation. So you found yourself mm-hmm. adapting in the way that you mentioned the example that you gave that, um, you know, you're reaching your goals faster with fewer people or fewer visits even. Um, what do you think, what else are you doing? And then what do you think will persist beyond when we can all get back together face to face, mask or no mask? Yeah, great question. And that's what we spend a lot of time thinking on. So I think the the first thing that has changed that I, I, I hope to keep in, and Jason, you talk about this in the in the book a lot, is we have basically all the time that we spent traveling, um, you know, filling our days with with some of the stuff that 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 uh, perhaps was just feeling busy as opposed to being productive, going back to your efficiency statement. We've we have really invested in professional yeah. development. Good so we have taken a, you know, a, a sort of whole person approach to this. So um, just a couple of things that I think will stick is that's one of them. And, and I'll, I'll quickly go through some things that we're doing. Um, you know, we are uh, uh, every Wednesday we do a, a coffee and it's everybody's turn on the team and, and they've got to bring an article or a book or something that has everything to do with fundraising or nothing to do with fundraising that allows us to just sit back and, and, get better as human beings. So, um, I did a, I did a session a couple of weeks ago on, uh, breathing and mindfulness. Um, we've had sessions on the stock market, 
everything, but it's a chance to to step away from our core daily business and and really just get better as, yeah. as human beings. Um, on Fridays, uh, we, so little backstory, little Navy story, real quick. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, the 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 Navy brought on a, a new captain that was overseeing all of our leadership programs. And uh, he was the former commanding officer of the blue angels. Um, so he came over and did a briefing for our team. Um, he showed us really cool GoPro videos. He talked about culture building. He talked about all these things and he was kind of sticking around at the end of the hour. And, and um, he was talking about preparation and he we're in a conference room. Um, he says, let me, let me show you guys something that we do in the blue angels. It's called chair flying. And he sits in his chair which turns into his cockpit. And he, in real time, in, in the sense that it took three minutes and 30 seconds to do this maneuver over the Severn River here in Annapolis, he recreated exactly what he was doing as the lead pilot of the Blue Angels doing this maneuver over the water. And I, and, and he's doing the voice, he's in the position, yeah. and he's, he's it, it's, it was incredible. And everybody is sitting there kind of jaws on the floor like, how can he time that in his head, the visualization that he can do, all these things that you do in, in preparing for that. Obviously, that's a, a very different scenario than what I'm going to describe. But we took that model and, you know, I've been really surprised to hear this from a lot of colleagues in that um, we started doing uh, weekly and, and more frequently than that what we call chair flying, which is role playing. Um, that is something that I am just amazed that institutions aren't doing on a more regular basis. Um Everything from uh, uh, mock uh, uh, meetings that that are, are just kind of general in nature, like what is it like to go on a discovery meeting or or talk about the Naval Academy, particularly with some new staff that we've had over the last couple of years. So, so we have this total commitment to just preparation that we've really d- dug in on the last year, and I think that will stick uh, as part of this professional development. Um, people can bring a, a scenario: Hey, I've got a I've got a big call with a with somebody about a. a, a you know, a, a, an incident with their, or something wrong with their gift or I'm making an ask, we can recreate all those scenarios. And um, I think the, the, once you get over the initial awkwardness of them, cause they're, they can be a little um, strange and, and you kind of take out the small talk. I think that was one of the things we learned through the process. Like don't try to recreate the small talk, get to the meat of the conversation, um, recreating the words that you have to do. So the, the whole idea of professional development, we've utilized our our faculty here that, that teach leadership. Um, that, that is something that I, I really hope, uh, will, will stick. Um, it's, it's, it's made us better. And I think if we can invest in our staff, it's going to make them, uh, happier staff, happier development officers are going to, are going to have better relationships with donors. They're going to be more engaged in where they work, more engaged in the institution. And I think that's made a big difference. Um, you know, one of the other sort of, uh, uh, standard things that we, we changed is, um, you know, just being coming more to where the donor wants to meet is something that we always, uh, you know, we we were, we were kind of joking about this before you had to, you couldn't have the call. You couldn't have the conversation over the phone call setting with the meeting. You had to go have the meeting. Um, (laughs) I think that will change forever. If you pick up the phone and call and check in on someone, um, and it, it, it leads to a a conversation about their philanthropy that then, you've done your job. Yeah. Um, where, whereas we were all pre-wired to say, wait a second, don't, don't tell me that now because I need to do it in person. Cause it has to count towards my metrics. First I have to get uh, on a plane. Or, uh, and know, then, yeah. Yes. <laughs> or it you doesn't know, count. Is, uh, count, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and I think that mentality, 
um, is definitely something that we will never go back to. And, and last summer we changed the way we define metrics. It used to be like, you know, a meeting was a meeting. It had to be planned. You have to go and do it. And we started counting, so to speak, anything where you were able to engage in a meaningful conversation. Good so those you. are those are two big things. For yeah. sure. the, uh, Jason, he's talking about deliberate practice. I know he is. I know <laughs> the, the same author that I referenced a few moments ago. Um, I can't, anyway, he's the prof- he's a professor, business professor in Toronto. And he and this gets back to that that notion of uh, what he, what he is called surrogation. It's the idea of sort of taking taking one metric and sort of inserting it. And in, in, in his case, he's critiquing this whole scenario that we saw play out at Wells Fargo over the last five or six years with the sort of the idea that the, that, that Wells Fargo was using a particular metric as an indicator that they had quality relationships with with a key category of customers that they wanted. Um, but in our case. What we have, what we have done, and what you're, what you guys have sort of unraveled and 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 deconstructed, is the idea that hopping on an airplane does not hopping on an airplane is not necessarily a accurate indicator of a meaningful relationship, and 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 I've been there. I mean, I remember again going back to my experiences when I was in D.C., not too far from where you're at, and I'm thinking. How many times was I sort of checking off several boxes that were largely just, quite frankly, expenses, you know, buy a plane ticket, schedule a time, don't be in the office, all these sort of things that ultimately sort of signaled to the rest of the shop or the rest of the organization that I was building meaningful relationships when, in fact, it wasn't really, it really wasn't proving anything. They were sitting in, they were sitting in as surrogates. Um, as an indicator, uh, I think we've done that with the renewal rate, for example. I don't think the renewal rate on an annual basis is really an indication of a meaningful relationship at all. I, you know, if I went and told my wife or colleague, hey, we haven't renewed our relationship in the last 12 months, <laughs> I don't think it would work. <laughs> it's not It's not the way relationships work according to a 12-month, you know, this isn't right with a 12-month schedule. I think relationships are a little more complex and a little less predictable um, and the other thing I want to say, Mike, as I was listening to you, I recently read a paper on the idea that professional development is going to become much more in the field, like you just described it. A lot of us sort of gravitate towards these sort of these emerald cities where they can sort of teach us all the expertise we want, and then we can go back to the office. What you described is 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 professional development that is totally contextual has to be done in the field. And can only be done in your context. I mean, if we were if we were talking to the Humane Society down the street in Annapolis, or we were talking to a nearby children's home or a healthcare organization at the Annapolis Hospital, the context in which they're in and the donor with which they're expecting to have that, uh, what you call the, sort of that 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 role playing, it's completely different. And so professional development takes on a whole different. And so what what does this mean? And what is this author talking about? It just creates extraordinary opportunities for the for like the person who's your boss or yourself and, you know, either you or your your boss to become sort of the quote unquote expert in the room and not constantly relying on this outside expertise um, letting expertise, what is true, real, meaningful expertise at the academy to sort of exist right there um, is, is kind of phenomenal mm-hmm. to hear and, and listen to what you're saying. 
Yeah, and, and I and, and it's and it's not just you know it's from colleagues. So so you're getting right, trained right. by your peers. Um, so you're hearing about their experience in the exact same conversation, which is all yeah. contextual. That's a great point. But it's it's the, the beauty of it is is that it's free, particularly in this world of of probably limited professional development budgets. Um, you know, it is uh, you know it's something that somebody can start tomorrow. And in the process of doing those role plays, because I used to manage both major gift staffs and annual fund staffs that were out in the field. Mm-hmm. And that was one of our practices, but more so really once a year, maybe at our retreat, I'd make them do it under duress. Mm-hmm. They didn't like doing it. And I did it. And I didn't mm-hmm. like doing it in front of them because I thought, well, I have to get this perfect. I have to land. I have to do whatever yeah. the Blue Angels do perfectly, right? But what have you been surprised yeah. about or learned about your staff in that process? Um, that's a great question. Um, I, I, I think... Uh, you certainly learn about, you know, kind of things on the surface, style, things like that. Um, I think one of the, the the fun takeaways from this is that, you know, we've one week we did a, a, a topic on let's ask curious questions. So come into the role play and you're going to meet with your colleague in front of everybody and you're going to ask questions that you would ask a donor. The personal connections that we build with each other by learning each other's backgrounds is a surprise. And so, um uh, you know, I have one of one of the guys on on our team. His 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 dad worked here. He grew up in Annapolis. Um, one of his teammates was asking him questions about what it, in the donor kind of kind of role play what it was like to live here and and the emotional depth that he got into. It was it was amazing. We learned things about his upbringing in Annapolis that just grew us closer together as a team. So, not only did the the role play as a development officer get to grow, and he was practicing his skills, which. We don't get the chance to practice that much right now because of the limitations of, of COVID, but, you know, we learn about each other. So I think that's one of the things surprising about this process. I, one of the things that always shocked me was um, extroverts aren't always the best at meeting donors, at least in the role plays. Yeah. It was more so the introverts who are better listeners and could hear what mm-hmm. the other person was saying and, to use your word, adapt in real time and take the conversation somewhere completely different because I've done role plays where I give them a scenario. And I remember one where I said, okay. And it was a real one that I had uh, when I worked at MIT, this is a former athlete. He played soccer. He works at Goldman Sachs. Mm -hmm. He's done really well. His wife's an alumna. And, um, but he's really upset about uh, something that happened in MIT, not having to do with sports at all. Mm -hmm. When she was, you know, role playing and, and talking to him. I gave it to the person she had herself had played um, soccer in college. So I thought, oh, she'll pick up on the whole soccer thing. And one of the questions was, you know, what what did you love about MIT? And he said, oh, I played soccer and I keep in touch with the coach and he sends us weekly emails in season to let us know what's going on. And we have a, my wife and I have a very close relationship. And then she pivoted back to his problem. And I was like, I didn't stop her in that moment. But when we debriefed, I said, keep him going on what he loves. Yeah, yes. Why, why did you go back and focus on, you know, I can't stay on MIT because it made this decision. Like you're telling me you have weekly contact and you and your wife with the soccer coach, let's go there. Mm-hmm. And she, she, yeah. she was so programmed to kind of go through a series of things that she wasn't really taking and listening to what really was happening and what he was saying. So yeah, and and that's a, that's the type of instant feedback that in a sort of risk free setting you can do, and and we provide that. And uh, 
you know, one of the things that I love about going on the road when we can do that with, with the team is coming out of a meeting and being able to debrief on it. I mean, everybody, um, it, it, and you really miss that. And, and this creates that opportunity. I, I, I would say the one other thing you can, we've, we've learned through that is mixing it up really helps because it, you can't always bring a scenario. Um, but like we've done kind of lightning round things where we just ask really common questions that are, that are, um, uh, you know, sort of topical at the time for, for our community. Um, so it gets people just in the, you know, in the mindset to be able to speak to things really quickly. So, um, it, it, it's feedback on all those types of things that are really good. Yeah. And that, that deliberate practice gets people ready to be in the chair to fly, right? They're not surprised by mm-hmm. exactly different, um, uh, questions they may get from exactly. prospects and donors, uh, and they can, they have a paragraph or two to respond. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's great. Mike, I, no, yeah. no, no, no crashes. Mike, I get the <laughs> no I, I get the impression, Mike, uh, as we, we we lose our listeners at about this point. So, I'm, but but I'm itching to ask this question. Uh, reading between the lines, it sounds like we're talking to a guy who the silver lining in this this last year for you in many ways as you've sort of as you have collectively and individually sort of adapted to the current reality has perhaps afforded you a, a, a new layer of sort of joy or to use Teresa's word love which is a word I love I, I love to hear uh, when it, when we're referring to fundraising work because I don't think a lot of us love our work but my guess is Mike is that the that the experience of the last year is probably going to ensure that you both stay in the field longer in fundraising and and will stay at the academy longer am i right that 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 both that appreciation that affinity for your work at the institution and your appreciation for how fundraising really works has actually gone grown stronger despite the sort of ups and downs and the uncertainties of what we've experienced for the last year. Yeah. I, I, I think, um, what the, what the last year has taught, hopefully everybody is just, you know, you have to do what matters most and what we've learned matters most is, you know, we've talked a lot about professional development here, but I, I, I am, um, the, the importance of that has certainly grown in the way that we go about our business every single day. Um, but then just kind of on the, on the donor side is it, just that we've, we've learned what it's like or what it means to create meaningful relationships. And it's, it's, you know, um, we've learned how to be consistent and we've learned how to consistency is something that we didn't talk on, but that's, that's a, a big theme. If, if uh, we've talked a lot about in our shop about the flywheel from good to great, if you're not familiar with yep. that, I would uh, encourage um, folks to go think about the consistency of the flywheel and um, you know, how many flywheels can you manage? Um, you know, how many, how many flywheels donors can you, can you put the little prods on? So eventually it just goes and it's fully spinning. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's been great. It, 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 I appreciate the, the reading my enthusiasm, uh, over the internet here, but it's, <laughs> uh, it's a great place to be a part of. And it's a great, um, opportunity that we do this work better. Mike, uh, we, people know how to find us. They know how to find the responsive website. They know how to find the podcast on iTunes and so forth, but somebody may be into, and they probably can find the Naval Academy, but they might be interested in finding you, Mike. How would you suggest if somebody's listening to our conversation, they're like, I want to reach out to that guy, continue that conversation, ask him about something he said, uh, how would you suggest that they do that? 
Uh, easy to find on LinkedIn, Mike Hoffman uh, at the Naval Academy, or happy to give out my email address. It's mike.hoffman, H-O-F-F-M-A-N, at usna.com. Mike, it has certainly been a pleasure. Very enlightening conversation. I would have kept you going for a lot longer because we were getting some good stuff out of your brother. Um, thank you again. Nice thank to you. Meet you, Mike. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.